This episode is sponsored by the Trine Law Firm. Galen Trine is a former personal injury lawyer turned injury navigator. He specializes in helping families find resources and organizing structured negotiations using principles from restorative justice circles, peacemaking processes, and relational practices to customize alternatives to lawsuits for those who want to see repair, not only locally for their families and their injuries through financing, but also repair to the broader community and broken systems. Galen's cases have been featured in Emmy-winning programming. And if you're at all curious about alternatives to the legal system that allow for greater positive change and collaboration, or want guidance in finding the best injury lawyer, call Galen Trine at 970-227-4187. Welcome to Blink of an Eye, where we interview thought leaders and deep thinkers on trauma healing wisdom, both ancient and modern, as we learn together with experts from around the world. We also engage in captivating relational conversations with spinal cord injury heroes and innovators in our Dear Louise series. Out of one mom's trauma to integration story, Blink of an Eye brings you a collection of unparalleled and diverse views as we take you on an inspiring and unvarnished look at the true nature of trauma in all our lives. Today's episode is part of our Trauma Healing Learning Series, where we meet with esteemed experts, doctors, therapists, and healers to learn essential wisdom and practical methods, both ancient and modern, to consider in our collective trauma healing journey. This episode is sponsored by Blink of an Eye Nonprofit and by Baltimore Mediation. Hello, everyone. I'm Louise Fipsempt, your host of Blink of an Eye podcast and the founder of Blink of an Eye Nonprofit. We all know how life can change in the blink of an eye. Please reach out to me at louise at blinkofaneye.org about your experiences with trauma and trauma healing. Our next guest is a true force of resilience, determination, and unwavering passion for justice. His story is not merely a narrative of legal triumphs and courtroom battles. It's a testament to the incredible heights that the human spirit can reach when faced with adversity and often in the face of debilitating trauma. Galen Trine is an attorney who is dedicating his career to the pursuit of justice So what does this have to do with trauma healing? Well, his story isn't confined to the walls of courtrooms or legal textbooks. His story is about what he discovered is essential and his desire to speak to the depths of the human soul, showcasing 
the incredible power of personal transformation of trauma as an actor in a larger legal system. In today's Trauma Healing Learning, we delve into the profound twists and turns of a young lawyer's life and career. It's a story that will leave you on the edge of your seat, eager to uncover the secrets behind his remarkable journey. So stay tuned as we unravel the inspiring lessons and poignant challenges of an advocate in the legal system and the captivating transformations of his and others' traumas that define Galen Trine's practice. His approach is a reminder that even in the face of adversity, we all have the power to look back and within, to learn and to heal as we march forward. Stay tuned. I am blessed to introduce you to Galen Trine. Galen Trine is a lawyer who graduated with honors from the University of Wyoming College of Law and has been a passionate advocate for justice ever since. As an attorney, he specialized in personal injury, insurance bad faith, products defects, and corporate negligence. Galen's early success began when he won his first case before graduating law school. He has worked with the Wyoming Attorney General on issues of consumer protection, and he has sought out top litigators in Colorado to mentor him. He fearlessly challenged a major insurance company in court in one of his recent trials, which resulted in a verdict over 230 times larger than the initial settlement offers. And then Galen Trine pivoted his practice. Stay tuned to find out why in this most compelling trauma healing learning episode. Welcome, Galen. So good to have you on the show. (laughs) Thank you. You know, as a top student, uh, a youngish lawyer now, trial lawyer, big verdicts, and this pivot, might we begin with an inner understanding of the man, Galen Trine? Who are you? How do you view yourself? Wow, that's a big one. I come from storytelling and storytellers. So that's been a common through line from making movies as a teenager to doing uh, written storytelling in undergrad. So that's carried me through pretty much everything Mm. I've done. I like healing. I've really found a community that I feel like I belong in with the therapeutic community. And that was something I was introduced to through Jerry Spence and Trial Lawyers College through psychodrama. And that really informed my legal practice. And then more recently, it sort of lured me away from it to some extent. Yeah. The um, psychodrama that we, as trial lawyers, I being a trial lawyer myself, interestingly enough, for seven years before I jumped off the cliff and left the big practice and started one of the first mediation companies. But psychodrama was really a tool to be used for the lawyer to maximize the gain. You have found that there's a whole nother aspect of psychodrama that's not that, it sounds like, but something far different. I'm sure that there were lawyers around me that were using it purely as a tool. For example, you can do things 
with story building through psychodrama, you can pull witnesses down off the stand to recreate scenes of what they experienced. But the teacher that I had, I think was more focused on the concept that if you're going to tell people stories and if the main foundation of what you do is credibility, you'd better be a full person who's done their work. That's sort of where credibility is based out of. So we were just going in to actually start doing our own personal work and get in touch with all the different parts of ourselves through psychodrama. And that was really a game changer for me. It helped me see different layers of what was going on. And it also, some of those layers revealed to me things that I was concerned about in the legal system, things that didn't feel like complete in the services I was offering to people. Felt like there was a lot more to explore in what healing means and, and really listening to people who'd gone through a big life change and were navigating that. And it felt like the answers were well outside of my legal training for how to do that better. You know, there's a wonderful French philosopher, Henri Nouwen, who speaks of healer, heal thyself. And it sounds like that's what you were invited to do in that uh, psychodrama work that you entered a number of yeah, years ago. Yeah, I don't know about you. I feel like I'm just still scratching the surface of personal healing and personal work. But my partner talks about healed people, heal people, and empowered people, empower people. So it feels very good to do the personal work. Maybe we could juxtapose what led up to your becoming more interested in the personal work, since you had certainly spent your years in the courtroom and in the adversarial legal system. Could you give us a glimpse of that? Yeah, I came from trial lawyers on my mom's side, going back to my grandfather. And before that, his family had been coal miners. So I get this sense that deeply embedded in their sort of biology or unconscious programming was this tendency to swing a pickaxe at a problem hard and to resist it with every fiber of mm. your being. And I saw that in my grandfather and to some extent my mother as well of sort of finding the wrong to oppose and, and fight as hard as you can. And that was my approach starting out as a lawyer. And I think I held on to the places where I was able to deliver value to clients through fight as hard as you can mode, especially on some of the bigger cases against bigger corporations, which I'm sure you have experienced. They can fight really hard. They've got a lot of power currency to fight hard. They do. So, you know, I've, I had experiences where fighting very hard for sometimes years on end. I was able to see the result for clients and felt very good about that. And yet at the same time as I was doing more psychodrama. And I was also training as a very specific type of life coach. It's called the coactive approach. Mm. It's quite simple. It's based in open-ended questions and listening and reflecting and embracing the concept that the coach doesn't have any answers and people are naturally creative, resourceful, and whole. And with a little help and partnership can sort of get in touch with what they want as well as the path to get there. So through that training, psychodrama and coaching and therapy, I started to 
feel like as attentive as I was as a lawyer and as passionate of an advocate as I was, I was still doing a lot of, for example, asking people to get in touch with what had been taken from them, what they couldn't do, and doing a lot of pulling them into a narrative of good and evil where a big evil opponent had come and and robbed them of a lot of things, which was truth, but it was sort of a half-truth in, in my perspective. And it didn't leave a lot of... Yeah, incomplete, yeah, an incomplete truth. It didn't leave a lot of room for win-wins mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. collaboration. And I didn't have any lawyers modeling that for me at all. So it wasn't until I really stepped away from law completely and just took a sabbatical and it was reading Gandhi's biography and training and restorative justice and mediation and transformational mediation and these other forms of conflict resolution, these other forms of leadership that I felt like I was tapping into the opportunity to build teams, create a vision of what's the beautiful thing that you want to build out of this challenging time or this conflict and trying to find beauty in that. And, and my experience was with a beautiful vision. It's, it's a very different experience where people are eager to jump on board and offer resources and offer help. And it's just a very different paradigm compared to saying, I'm going to feel better by being right and making someone else wrong. Yeah. Whether I ever succeed at that or not, somehow or another, the, the worldview that that will make me yeah. feel better to fight so hard and to, at someone else's yeah. expense. And it's, it can be a very long, hard fight, especially with spinal cord injury, because again, I'm sure as you know, those cases can be 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 million dollars. And I feel like the more money's involved, the harder the fight is. If it's, if people go down the road of trying to fight really hard, it can be quite the fight. Yeah, it's been said by many, many a client of any kind of large lawsuit or even what might be seen from a dollar's perspective as a small lawsuit, but a divorce or just a a divorce of, of many that month, that it's a traumatic experience to have to be so against something that you believed in had to be so against somebody you believed in, somebody you placed your trust in, whether it was a system or whether it was a person or a lover. And that hard fight against that can really rob you, as you said, and rock you to your value core as you question yourself. You know, how, how did I find myself here? And then you've got sort of the existential you know, black hole. Yeah. I too experienced that as a, as a young lawyer and was living, I felt, in two worlds. One, the adversarial world where I needed to champion my client and then the other mm-hmm. questioning world, which included questioning myself and my own role. What was that journey for you like? If I'm allowed to ask you questions. <laughs> <laughs> you are. Well, it's interesting. I, I may have been similar in age, to you and it was I was just struck by what you shared that it was like eight years into your practice as it just about was for me seven as I think I'd mentioned I just found that well I was married and then I began to have children and I was the only woman in a large firm 
that was pregnant and then returned after having a baby. I should have just known then. And, but of course, it was more like, well, of course, I'll just, I'll be the first. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but then I found that it was more bifurcating who I was. You know, like my breast pump had to be like a brief bag for the big case I was traveling to go do depositions on. Dare I let anybody in on the real secret that I was nursing a baby? You know, my late nights um, at the office were tearing me apart that I was missing putting my baby to bed. And it was ripping me up on the inside in ways that my busyness and striving to win for my clients, small cases and large cases. I had three-week trials and I had one-day trials. It was really overriding my own sense of numbing that I was experiencing. And it was, it was my body talking to me that things were not right, you know, sort of gastrointestinally. That was part of my path. There were many other aspects of it, but they all were part of one river. Yeah, I was also having health problems as I neared the end of the road in terms of traditional law practice. And as I've spent more time in rooms with like unitive justice and transformative justice folks, I resonate a lot with what they talk about it. And hearing you and your story reminds me of it. Of you know, I went to law school in Wyoming, and I think I just took for granted the way that the teaching was done. And I've heard that they're getting better in law schools, teaching wellness, you know, go get therapy, go do yoga to take care of yourself. But it does seem like they're not addressing the more fundamental aspects of them teaching what law is and sort of the history and culture that it's born out of and the hyper-competitive not really collaborative, especially with opposing counsel, at least the way I was brought up and the ways that even just that and that culture, I think can be very degrading. That may have something to do with the challenges I faced as a lawyer. And I think a lot of people do. And I bring it up because, you know, hearing your story that sort of reminders of children or that you're a mom, that you have this really loving relationship like that has no place in a in lawyer world uh, to me that's just a sign and i relate to how kind of dark that world was culturally i do think we have made incredible strides in the legal world of practice and also in the law schools there's so much to go but i do think there's a a darker element and it's really just, it's something that started off very good, if you ask me, competition. You know, competition in many ways is at the heart of our democracy. You know, breaking away and saying, I want to be able to speak for myself and have our own free commerce and, you know, value what it means to not be um, controlled, you know, by, by a larger entity that might not have my interest at heart. You know, it was, it was quite good in many ways. And it's also always had this other side of the coin that's quite mm -hmm. oppressive. And we can certainly take a historical journey on that, which we 
might not do on this podcast today, but, you know, just from our roots, yeah. right? And and then how we came to a territory and then we thought it was ours, right? When it was the Native Americans and then, then there was slavery and we indulged in that so we could prosper, the South could prosper on the backs, you know, of black people. We, it's this competitive mm-hmm. coin is very complex and I don't think it's just in the law. But I, I do think it's unique to the law, the adversarial mm-hmm. ethic, because it's actually baked in to our code of ethical practice, zealous mm-hmm. advocacy, you know? And we don't have any other profession that says that's your ethical responsibility to be a zealous advocate. Yeah. And that hasn't changed. Uh, some of us and some wonderful writers have opined that we might change or expand the definition to make that more complete, which is zealous advocacy for good process, for instance, as transformative mediators, right? Zealous advocacy, as you mentioned, Galen, for the, the well-being mm-hmm. of the client. But it's, it's no wonder that we have a long way to go in the legal system, but making strides on wholeness, as you mentioned, and a more trauma-informed lens that always has us having to look back at ourselves as the instruments and that journey that you took and are still on. And I'm on it too. (laughs) Well, and it's not out of the doom and gloom. I've seen some incredibly creative things. I've seen people doing written illustrated contracts, video contracts, comic book contracts, color-coded in all sorts of areas. Value statements at the beginning of contracts. You know, this is what we intend here. And then all, of course, the legalese. And we need the legalese, right? I mean, that's why, I mean, lawyers are some of the best people to have on one's team. You know, you you want somebody who knows how to, has been trained to think like a lawyer, it can keep you out of a lot of trouble and be succinct and clear. Oh, but it's there's so much more in the creativity, as you mentioned, that's now being found in some contracts. Yeah. <laughs> Have you been part of any of those more creative ways of scrivening a contract? No, I actually just got trained and haven't jumped in on the, they're called conscious contracts on the East Coast, kind of Maryland area. And I, met the woman doing that and I'm still training with her on how to do it responsibly. But I was doing bits and pieces of it in the personal injury world as I started venturing out into trying to get creative and how to settle cases where people really didn't want to go to court at all and how to bring insurance companies to the table. And there was overlap there because I think similar to the relationship-based or value statement type contracts. You're not approaching people with a raised fist. You're approaching people saying, hey, we see a lot of value in things that we respect in you. Would you be interested in going through a process with us that's a win-win? And what would a win look like to you? And what would a process that's deeply fulfilling to you look like? And starting to just design the container with them. I didn't have any notion that people were doing creative things with contracts at that time, but it it just felt like a more relational approach to conflict resolution that I was 
clumsily stumbling through in a trial and error sort of way myself, starting maybe four or five years ago. I love that stumbling, you know, stumble upon. I think one of my children a number of years ago discovered the stumble upon site, which is really about how we all find these amazing like glimmers that have been there for a while sometimes, and sometimes they're new and we happen to get lucky uh, and discover them at the same time they're emerging. But I do think there's this quality that can separate a law practice by whatever stripe one chooses to practice. Will you be transactional or will you be relational? And there are 101 ways to manipulate and fight hard and power over and be transactional just to get it done, regardless of whether it created well-being or not. But it creates a win. Yeah. Not always. <laughs> and there are 101 ways to be relational. Maybe 1,001 ways. It's just about yeah. choice. I, I mean, I felt if lawyers aren't sort of aware of the relational piece and actually building on that plane with clients, then the economic reality with plaintiff's lawyers is they take 33% of or some percentage of the money that they get. So 40%. 40, sometimes and 50. so that's it, kind of the measure of success, it seems like, and, and long-term happiness or sort of the emotional, spiritual well-being of their client 10 years down the road. If it's on a radar, whether because of trauma-informed training or just life experiences or going through it to some extent, I think it gets hard to not be relational that point it's like you can't unsee those things and so you start you know money and financial security is important though i think it's important primarily because of the emotional well-being it provides or the kind of stability it provides that the family can then reintegrate because massively traumatic injuries they affect everyone in the family they can be very destabilizing I don't know. I'd like to be as uh, positive as you are to think that it's just a matter of time for every lawyer before she or he or they see that there's just, you're really missing it if you're not practicing some aspect of your practice relationally. Uh, I've seen some pretty grizzled people all the way through to the end and through retirement as well. But I, my, I'm compassionate and I'm towards them. And I'm curious, I want to check this out with you. I think what you were speaking about with personal injury lawyers and their contingency. And so whether it's, you know, a third or 40 or 50%, they probably really earn that because they're working off times with people who have been really injured, really harmed. And what we know about trauma is that when we are really injured or really harmed, we are at our weakest, our lowest. Physically, emotionally, you know, we don't think as clearly. Our, our emotions oftentimes are, are fragile or really spill or we're just really shut down and very steely, you know, just one myopic way. And I think without knowing sort of unwittingly Many lawyers 
take advantage of that because they don't realize what they're actually working with. What do you think about that? I think lawyers are working with the resources they have to to do as good as they have, and some have more resources than others. You mean resources as in emotional intelligence and... No, trauma-informed approaches, different methodologies than maybe what they were just taught in law school. And I think those can have a big impact. I think pretty across the board, the lawyers I've seen work very hard and they, you know, earn their money. But I, I think there's, there are a lot of different approaches. I, I, I think at the end of the day, I like the coach approach to lawyering and Focusing on listening to what the client wants to build and, and helping them kind of rebuild and restructure. I mean, I think that's true. What does that look like if a client comes in for you, that coaching approach to your lawyering now? Well, it starts off with listening and finding out, you know, what are what are you afraid of? What are we afraid of? What are we wanting? What are we angry about? What are we hoping for? What do we love and value? And sort of getting a sense of, okay, here are the things we're trying to navigate. Here's what we're trying to avoid. This sounds very simple. And yet no one in lawyering told me how to do this. When I started off lawyering, it was just, here are the issues. I've gotten your story. Here's how I'm going to go pitch it to the insurance company. Yeah, we're all trained that way, right? Here's this like this universe of facts and conflicts and, and, you know, spot the issue, (laughs) apply the law to that issue, emerge. (laughs) So, yeah, I don't know, to give an example, I've had someone come in who might have a legal case, probably not. It's going to be really challenging and expensive. In Colorado, medical malpractice cases are very hard and there's a huge overhead. So that still may be a road that they go down, but, you know, starting to explore what they want. There's a big concern about helping to protect people who are in a similar position in the future or help wanting their story to be told, wanting to feel seen and heard, wanting to have some coverage for future care, wanting to have more research going into what future care could look like. This is someone who to do with care for osteoporosis and a lack of early intervention on that because after spinal cord injury there can be these sort of neurogenic responses that actually signal the bones to start offloading calcium even faster and more extensively than someone else who's on bed rest but without a spinal cord injury so he was wanting answers on that and so talking through all of that and saying what are options maybe outside of traditional legal system to coordinate or to get people on board or on the team talking with doctors or medical researchers and just trying to meet those needs and come up with a plan and a team that's his approach i I had another person who i said we're going to film a documentary you know it'll help the story be told we ended up showing it to the insurance company that said they would never in a million years pay without a lawsuit. They didn't want to file a lawsuit. And the CEO ended up coming and coming out to meet us and 
sat with the client and cried and gave an apology and told her what they were doing to change policies at the company. So I feel like I'm meandering because the truth is, because it's a very listening-based approach, I feel like it's a completely different model and plan for every case. Sounds like transformative mediation. It's probably <laughs> similar. It's just with just yeah. one party. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I have not done, or I've not been trained under that heading, but I do remember when I got my mediation training, they mentioned different types of mediation. And one of them was transformational mediation. And everyone in the class was asked, you know, which appeals most to you? And a lot of them said, this type that we had all just been trained in. And I was the one who said, no, this is my second favorite. Transformational sounds amazing. I I like how that sounds. We'll pause now in support of our sponsors who support Blink of an Eye. We'll be right back. Blink of an Eye nonprofit is filling a gap nationwide in response to spinal cord injury trauma for families in the first hours and days of injury. With fewer than 20 hospitals in the country having SEI expertise, Blink of an Eye has navigators who themselves have been there as SEI survivors and who are trained in relational approaches to trauma, who are available 24-7 to support families, empowering them on their journeys, navigating their lives, and interacting with medical staff for the first 30 days. The nonprofit's mission is to transform the SCI crisis experience into an extraordinary one, despite the devastation. When you learn of a newly injured SCI family, call Blink of an Eye on their toll-free number, 1-844-41-BLINK. You can also learn more and get involved with Blink of an Eye at www.blinkofaneye.org. Blink of an Eye is sponsored by Baltimore Mediation. Since 1993, Baltimore Mediation has been leading the way in a relational approach to conflict and problem solving. They are national leaders in teaching and providing fully immersive and experiential online training in mediation and conflict transformation skills. Register for the next course at www. BaltimoreMediation.com. The quality of your interactions at work, at home, and in your daily life will be transformed. And you will create more well-being for yourself and others. Better process, better outcome. Baltimore Mediation. And now, back to the show. Yeah, it's all about the outcome. Uh, it's, a, it's a gulf of difference where the mediator doesn't do the problem solving, but the mediator fosters yeah. empowerment through the listening and reflection. Very proactively, mm-hmm. too. <laughs> or very quietly. It all is matching the tempo of the others in the room. Yeah. But on that note and what it is that you're doing and your coaching model and what it is that those whom you've been working with are showing you how they do it, or that it's more of a, it sounds like a bit of a a lawyer quarterbacking, (laughs) bringing others together. Yeah, it's, it's, I don't have a great way of articulating it yet. I feel like I'm still fumbling my way through that as well, but it, it feels a little like matchmaking to me or team building. Mm 
or community building and just trying to take the lid off of what we imagine is possible and seeing where there's opportunities for people to collaborate or, or have all of their needs met and then going out to them. And the skills of a lawyer are still very useful. I think like it, it's very much still storytelling and telling an inspiring story that people want to be a part of. And it's a, if I go and meet with a doctor, mm-hmm. it's a different story that I'm telling them that inspires them to jump on board and say, how can I help? How can I make my network available? But it, it does feel like this different, very lead from behind approach, almost fading into the background and bringing all these people in to take over, be inspired, drive almost like a cause or a movement with momentum and almost be left behind, like the creating this thing that like a good parent would almost creating this life form for the client and for their cause that's beautiful and takes on a life of its own. And is this in parallel or in substitution or something else to filing an action? It's a great question. I don't think it has to be a replacement to, I think so far I have found I'm offering the most value to people who very much don't want to file a lawsuit. And yet I very often put them in touch with lawyers and sort of help them with the matchmaking process on that. You mean put them in touch with other lawyers who will file on their behalf, even though they don't want to go through a lawsuit or litigation. Yes. And I think that's unique to each case, but I think the sad fact is sometimes I've been blown away by how often the collaborative approach has worked for me, but sometimes there are just people on the other side who seem to say, no, I only respect toughness and warfare. And in those situations, it's, a decision for the clients and I'm, you know, make myself available to help with that decision and I try and put them in touch with lawyers, almost like a matchmaker that will receive them and meet their values as much as possible. Because for example, I've had a, I had a client who developed an autoimmune disorder just from the stress of the underlying injury. I was just going to say, I think there's so many people who would come to many lawyers not wanting to file a lawsuit, but wanting help, wanting something over with, wanting something changed, wanting some redress, but not wanting to be opposing through a lawsuit for those very reasons, the incredible stress. And you had a client who had suffered autoimmune deficiencies. So we, I mean, we knew in terms of shopping around for a lawyer and making that a pleasant process that it was going to be very important that the lawyer receive her and communicate and have a plan for the procedure of the case itself that would absolutely minimize stress. And I think there was also some sense of closure and peace of mind for her and for the team of, you know, it's one thing to just go to war, so to speak, out of the gate against some company or an insurance defense, you know, whoever it is. It's another thing to have really tried to make peace and and do the honorable thing in my eyes of trying to give the benefit of the doubt 
And if that's rejected over and over, I think there's a, a greater ability to walk forward with a lawyer fighting or even walk into the courtroom knowing that your hand's been slapped away. I just love that. It's how I felt so much when I was a young lawyer. What I found and realized, I was an insurance defense lawyer, by the way. So you're on the plaintiff side, I was on the defendant side, is that the defense are going to do their utmost. Not only do we have a legal system civilly because we're glutted with Mm -hmm. criminal actions where a case isn't going to be heard for three or more years. And then we have all the abilities to drag Mm -hmm. things out as in the the insurance defense side. And, you know, (laughs) you want to, we, I left too, but it's like, you want to be collaborative and help a family or a person with their own well-being and to reduce the stress. But meanwhile, they have serious everyday needs that require dollars and they require different Mm -hmm. experts and support to make it through. And, And meanwhile, they're getting delinquency notices in the mail and potentially foreclosure because they haven't been able to pay their mortgage. I mean, yeah. it's the stress is compounded, even if they had a really great case in the eyes of the lawyer, because you won at yeah. the end of the day. What are your views on, on that? I mean, I could opine what your views are, but maybe a better question is, what might, might be some of the approaches you take to that dynamic? Oh, that's a great question. I do think there's this delay tactic. I think to some extent, if I've failed to, in my new position, if I've failed to get decision makers who are interested in coming to the table for a more peacemaking type process, it may be time to hand off to a lawyer who's going to fight harder. When I was doing more litigation, my approach was to work up the case as completely as I could before filing. And then I would file and show up to the case management conference, which is just sort of that first meeting with the judge and the other side and say, they've had all our expert reports for so long. We want you to set expert disclosure deadlines three weeks out. And we want you to set trial three months out. That's kind of unrealistically short. They wouldn't, but we would get quick turnarounds. And I think it also would send a message to the other side, sort of that it was going to be difficult to delay. And I also liked to, to the extent I could, and to the extent the client wanted it, get the press involved. Because I feel like we, we as lawyers, injury lawyers, deal with systems breakdowns. If there's not some sort of systems breakdown, I feel like there's typically not a case. So especially if it's a spinal cord injury case that hasn't resolved, you're typically dealing with a big insurance policy because if it wasn't a big insurance policy, they would have just paid out already. So you're often dealing with like some sort of trucking company or product issue. With a motor vehicle accident. Where there's, mm-hmm. Yeah, systems break down. And so I feel like when there's systems breakdowns, there's opportunities to correct that. But in our modern modern world, there can be bureaucracies and compartmentalization. And so communicating through that And getting everyone to the table is important. I really love that. I think of all the different 
sources of power currencies and the press um, preparation and that preparation can be so collaborative for months ahead of time before you actually you know go and and meet the other side it doesn't have to be the foe but the other side and you do so as a, a very very from a position mm-hmm. of strength with open arms and that might be what is so taking the other side oftentimes off their heels uh, when you come in very strong, but with open it's arms very... <laughs> and asking, you know, for those deadlines. Yeah, I'm sure you've got stories. Yeah. Well, I mean, that that's the aggressive side. I think they were still surprised, but it still fit the paradigm they were used to. I, I feel like I am taking defense counsel off guard way more recently because it's off-putting to have an quote-unquote opposing counsel approach you sort of with open arms. Hey, let's collaborate. How can we work together? How can we make something beautiful together out of this? You know, at first there's like this look. Of, when you're so prepared. What are you pulling? <laughs> what are you trying to do here? Exactly. <laughs> right. Yeah. What's the trick? I mean, I love, mm-hmm. and this doesn't always work, but I'm amazed how often it can. It's, I was trained to send demand letters. Which is I was too. tricky and, you know, there's some benefits to it, but it's it's a word that I associate with children who are demanding things and sets off a lot of defense mechanisms. And I, I've loved moving into sending invitation letters or sending letters that even highlight the 27 beautiful things this company has done that are inspiring to you that communicate they care about people and they care about their clients and they're innovative and they want to learn from their mistakes. You say, this is all great because we've got a potential systems breakdown here and we've got a wonderful opportunity to um, meet all these values and do something beautiful out of this and to build a relationship. I mean, I, I think it's a win-win for companies to be able to go out and brag about how a conflict like that resolved as opposed to the normal paradigm where they're forcing the other side to sign confidentiality agreements and never talk about how this conflict resolved and how much money got paid. And usually there's still hard feelings. You don't have to buy off someone to not say bad things about you unless you realize that there's still hard feelings. And to me, that's a sign that there hasn't really been a total resolution, even if money has changed hands. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's been a, exactly, there's been a transactional mm-hmm. outcome, but not any shift and moving towards something that feels like resolution for either either side or sides. I'm really loving the example. It's such a wonderful relational example of how you can come very prepared and then send a letter of invitation highlighting what you admire about the person whom you need mm-hmm. to negotiate with. Um, really bringing people to the table. It does lower defenses. Um, I suppose it, everything and anything that comes out of any person's mouth can always be done for the purpose of manipulating or trying to get the better of or one over. Or it can be with the intention of creating a relational Negotiation field, step one. I'm wondering if you might have a story about how your approach in doing so ended up 
Well, my first time doing anything like this was in a wrongful death case, which is lawyer speak for someone died and there was a, a lot of lack of resolution with the family members about how they died, whose fault it was. There was unprocessed guilt. Maybe it was my fault. Maybe it was this company's fault. And it's not a financial issue as much the way it can be in spinal cord injury where you've got to stabilize the bank accounts to stabilize the family. It's more of just emotional closure, I think, getting and processing through this death and, and having an ally in the grief process that this woman was looking for. And yet at first I took that case and was looking at it through the sort of traditional personal injury lawyer lens, how I was trained of how do I get her money? And I went on a retreat with some people and it was a very eye-opening retreat. And it's hard for me to even put into words, but things just sort of clicked in that my job was to walk with her through the grief process. And it didn't matter what the money situation looked like. That might matter to her, but it didn't need to matter to me. And I sort of let go of even trying to get her money or trying to get the firm some contingency money off of the case and just focused on what would walking with her through the grief process look like and how could I do that to the best of my ability. And I think it shifted how I looked at opposing counsel and I sort of stopped all the bluster and fighting and pointing out all the weaknesses in their defenses. And I just called him truly not trying to get something from him, but I think just trying to take the risk of opening myself up to be vulnerable and speak transparently with him. It's sort of acknowledging that I had no power really in the situation that here was what I saw. Here was how I felt about it. And I saw an opportunity for us to do something beautiful together. And that I'd gone out and interviewed friends and family on my iPhone and this cheap little microphone and assembled this portrait of kind of who he was in, in his last moments on earth in 12 minutes. And at first, the defense counsel, sort of traditional adversarial defensive, but he called me back a few years later and said, you know, something about what you said and how you said it sunk in and let's give it a shot. And I actually referenced how this story ends earlier, but it was, it was to our surprise, not just the insurance adjuster came, but the CEO of the company came and um, CEO ended up pushing the insurance adjuster in the other room to, to manifest her her genuine sort of apology and sorrowfulness for what happened into money. And it wasn't that money was necessarily directly important. And yet it was this sign that, that it was taken seriously and, and her husband's life had been taken seriously. And so it ended up being a very, it felt more complete and sort of wholesome of a resolution than I was used to as a lawyer. I think that really 
as imperfect as that peacemaking process was, it, it was very different and it sent me down a different road and it made the more traditional resolutions feel less complete by comparison to me. Mm -hmm. I found the same as a transformative relational mediator. Money became, it was easy to talk about money and, and important actually to talk about money because it was another power currency as important as the genuine connection was a power currency and the sorrow and the deeply feeling someone else's sorrow is a power currency. And the apology, the desire to give an apology is a power currency. And when you weave them all together because you're awake enough to know that they're in the room, at least with some potential, never to be forced, but that the potential of all is there how powerful it is that you have been weaving them together like that. And the outcomes are ones that we can, I think, anticipate relationally and yet never be able mm -hmm. to script. <laughs> you know, we know they're there, but they just take your breath yeah. away, don't, don't they? Like that CEO. Yeah, I, I remember it just being beyond my wildest dreams for how someone could show up in that situation. I wrote her this letter by hand, I think maybe that evening and sent it to the defense attorney saying, please pass it along if you think it's appropriate. But I just, I didn't want to forget it or diminish it. It was such a gift. What, what she had given to my client. And I think I, in that case, really embraced how little power I had and sort of opened it up. And I, still feel such gratitude for the defense team sort of coming in and taking care of my client in all these ways that frankly I couldn't all I could do was say things and communicate what I was seeing but I didn't really have the power beyond that yeah but you were the instrument matchmaker storyteller mm. or something <laughs> yeah igniter something's happening in that room that's very very yeah. relational you know galen i'm just thinking about this touching conversation and where we began as we near the end but we began with your own personal work and i was wondering if we could return to that i was really captivated by your awareness of what we would call, and maybe you do as well, generational trauma from your own family of the, you know, the pickaxe. This is the way we go at problems, right? As minors that has just been handed down. You didn't ask for it, but it's part of your DNA, you know, tens of generations and hundreds potentially of years. And I'm wondering if there are any other uncoverings for you or where this personal journey is for you right mm. now? I have a friend in Washington. He's a lawyer. I had gone out to film a settlement documentary with him, traumatic brain injury case, and was driving around with him and 
I had never mentioned my father around him. So I've mentioned my dad, who was a soil sciences major and started farming and growing all of his own food and felt like the closest he could get to God and the universe was sort of a simple life of, of making his own things and growing his own food. So I mentioned this to my friend and he said, oh, well, Galen, no wonder you're so conflicted and, and sort of trying to rediscover law. You've got these <laughs> hardcore fight, fight the system, civil rights and personal injury lawyers on one side and this sort of monk-like farmer <laughs> on the other. Yeah. Truly earthy. <laughs> and you're trying to do kind of the work of every child in some sense of integrating these two sides, mom and dad. These two mm-hmm. generational lines. So I do feel very much like I'm still stitching those together. Personal work. You know, I've met this wonderful, beautiful partner who's has me reading this book called Wired for Love that's feels like a roadmap to very secure attachment styles, which weren't really modeled for me mm-hmm. growing up, coming from lines of divorce on both sides. And I try and trace that back to moments. And something that I've spent time looking at was actually when my brother around age one was diagnosed with cancer. And it didn't feel immediately traumatic to me in that I didn't have to think about bills or Medicaid or each round of chemo. I think my mom did a very good job of protecting me from that. And yet it still had these huge impacts on me as a kid. I was about eight or nine that I've only pieced together more recently in terms of how much space and mental and emotional energy that took up to to hold that, I think, for my mom. And being able to sense that as a kid and sort of move into a space of the way I am loving and I'm worthy of being lovable is to move into the fringes, pull back my needs, not make noise, not articulate needs, because there needs to be a lot of space to take care of my brother. And those habits, you know, I'm just kind of picking them apart and deconstructing them now in in my late Mm thirties. And Mm -hmm. so that's, that's one that feels to me like it, it echoes and it's related to what we do. I think it's related to getting people financial support, emotional support, and a sense of certainty of the process and building teams around them. Because I mean, really every member of the family and not even just family, the, the, the community of, of people who care deeply about a person and who are going to support them, like they're all impacted by severe injury. Everything we do is relational. Everything we do is relational. And we all live in systems. One large mm-hmm. system full of many other systems. There's nothing that one person does or says that doesn't impact some person Mm -hmm. in their system. And there's nothing that two people do or say that doesn't impact others in that system. It's a a high calling and also 
a simplistic understanding of how connected we are and responsible we can be. I'm so glad. I was blown away when I read your profile and got to meet you on the phone at first. Because there's not that many lawyers like you. The background matched up so much with the things I'm passionate about. And even just the the broader system that you had built of having entire response teams that were jumping in to guide people through this process. I think it's so mm-hmm. powerful and not just powerful in the moment of that year or two that you might be walking hand in hand with them. But I, I feel like after a huge life-shaking thing, you start practicing minute by minute, hour by hour, like the the new way of being. And if it's in loving community with support, like practicing these very healthy ways of doing healing, I think that just carries through for life. If you follow up 10 or 20 years later, like I know from experience that it's astounding the difference in mental health and emotional health and spiritual health that someone has from being met in that way that it seems like you and your organization is meeting people. So I was just ecstatic to have a chance to talk with you and be invited on. Thank you. You're so welcome. And thank you. Uh, The work at Blink of an Eye with the HEAL team that goes bedside and the navigators who themselves are deeply committed to their own personal work as relational mediators and through interpersonal work. We, we believe deeply in integrative health and in therapy and in sharing and in stumbling together and supporting and not having to be perfect and really understanding that we're all on this journey. And in order to work with others in healing, it's oftentimes through service. And when we need to step back because there's a new wound that's been exposed that we may not have even realized was there, then there's just more healing interpersonally Mm -hmm. to do. And then the others can take it over for a while while we take care of ourselves and then come back. Mm -hmm. Because we'll always meet others who come with open arms because they feel safe and others who come with shields and guns because they have to be so protected of themselves and to to stay open and holding this worldview of how broken trauma can have us feel, but that we are never broken. We're always whole. We just have to come back to restoration, which can be a lifetime. (laughs) (laughs) It also can happen in a quantum second. That's the incredible part. It sounds like you've experienced both. And you remind me of myself, Galen. I was about your age when I left a large law firm litigation practice, very successful as you, and simply said, I I couldn't actually do both. I needed to cut a new path for myself and for others. But you, with your creativity and your filmmaking background, you're cutting a path in your litigation practice and the way that you're doing it collaboratively with others, 
and bringing forth you as the instrument. It's very, very inspiring. Yeah. What's next? What's next for Galen Trine? Oh, I am moving more and more out of litigation, I'm pretty sure. So there's, I briefly spent some time at a district attorney's office and, and it's very specific ecosystem, very local sort of politics involved, but there are gaps in the system here. I want to try and fill until they can build out more of a restorative justice program. And so I may do some pro bono or sliding scale things with criminally accused just to make them more visible to the system. So more sort of informed and humanized relational decisions can be made about how to criminal law, there's, there's wounds and there's breakdowns of trust which, between people and the broader community. So that's a piece. Mm-hmm. I've been training in conscious contracts, training in mediation, but I think a, what seems to be coming my way and probably the, the direction I'm going is in brief work. So working with in death situations and possibly also with injured kids and focusing on ways to Tree conflict is an opportunity for creativity and collaboration and growth and healing. And I, I really like that in death, like situations where someone has died and in situations where kids are hurt, because it seems like both there's really room to use storytelling and visual things and even film, which is this thing I'm tied into having gone and done film and acting for a few years that I just really enjoy it's like an opportunity for people to try on their most heroic side. And I'm blown away by what kids and families can come together to do. Well, I think that's the direction I'm headed in. How beautiful is that? The death doula filmmaker. Creating healing spaces at a time of the deepest loss. A parental loss of a child. Mm. I look forward to hearing about your work, Galen, and thank you very much. And also welcome you to take a look at the work. We have a trauma-informed law group through Thomas Ubel's work on collective trauma. You might be interested in as well. Thank you so much for being you and for the contributions and the inspiration that you give for many lawyers, young and seasoned. Take care. Thank you. Galen Trine has traversed a landscape of triumphs and trials, of transformation and tenacity. His journey is a testament to the lessons we can glean from life's twists and turns. Through his unwavering dedication to the pursuit of justice, relational justice, Galen reminds us that while the quest for what is right often comes with challenges, The resolutions are found from within. And when shared with others, we find our greatest opportunities for growth and true transformation. As we conclude this episode in the Trauma Healing Learning Series, we honor not just the remarkable work of Galen, but also the indomitable spirit that fuels the pursuit of justice without revenge. The lessons learned from Galen's journey are also universal, resonating with anyone 
who seeks to make a positive impact in the world from the inside out. In the face of adversity, we can find strength. And in the pursuit of justice, we can find purpose. And in the willingness to adapt, we can discover new avenues within ourselves that create positive change for others and with others. No matter the challenges we face or the roles we take on, even as fierce legal or other advocates advocating for others or for societal change, the healing journey of any advocate begins from within. And that healing journey can extend to the advocacy on behalf of others. All of us have the profound capacity of inner healing and advocacy that inspires restoration. Stay tuned for more incredible insights and learnings from esteemed physicians, therapists, and healers in our Trauma Healing Learning Series. Together, we are raising the vibration for healing. Life can change in the blink of an eye. listening to Blink of an Eye, we ask that you share this with anyone who may need inspiration, a lift, or who may relate. Never miss an episode. Subscribe to Blink of an Eye on our website, blinkofaneyepodcast.com, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.